Are you ready to take your leadership in your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate their leadership approach, evolve their organizations, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help leaders identify disruptive trends and envision the opportunities these trends create. We help them elevate the quality of their leadership and transform their organizations to build sustainable success and impact. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. And I am also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. I am delighted to bring to you recorded live at the International Leadership Association Conference 2019 in Ottawa, Canada, whose theme is Courage to Lead, a series of interviews. Next, you'll hear Cynthia Cherry, the president of ILA, to introduce the conference, and then I'll be back to introduce our guests. International instability is only getting worse in today's world, and it cries out for a need for leadership. Hi there, this is Cynthia Cherry, President and CEO of the International Leadership Association. And the ILA has as its mission to advance leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. At this year's global conference in Ottawa, our theme was Leadership, Courage Required. And it was a gathering of 1,200 professionals from around the world to discuss, share, and explore the latest research, teachings, and best practices in leadership. In this series, ILA fellow Maureen Metcalf is the host of the 2019 series, and you will hear from corporate leaders, political leaders, and the leading scholars and teachers grappling with the complex issues of today. I hope you will join me in exploring these complex issues in the 2019 series. So I am delighted to be interviewing again Professor Mike Hardy. He's a founding and executive director of the Center of Trust, Peace, and Social Relations at Coventry University in the UK. After a distinguished career, he returned to the academic world in 2001 as professor of intercultural relations at Coventry University. So Mike, instead of me reading your very long and distinguished bio, I'm gonna ask you to tell us a little bit about the awards you've gotten, and not about bragging, but for people to understand the wisdom you bring to our conversation, especially about peace. So you may be overstating it, Maureen, but um, <laughs> thank you for that. The, you know, the British system is, uh, some argue, very archaic and quite bound in tradition. But uh, we do have an honours system in which uh, achievements are recognised. Mm -hmm. And uh, many of us who receive honours, which is, is brilliant and it's great for the family, great for our, our co-workers and so mm -hmm. forth, I, I get a little anxious about them. 
whether we're, you know. <laughs> so I'm now an OBE, I'm an officer of the British Empire. I've fought all my career, all my academic career and my political and social career fighting the concept of imperialism. And yet I'm an officer of the British Empire. So what is an officer of the British Empire for people who aren't British? So, uh, the royal family introduced historically um, medals and awards mm -hmm. to recognize mm -hmm. people. Um, the officer of the British Empire is simply a, 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 a medal. It's a, an award. You go to Buckingham Palace, the Queen invests you with this, and it recognizes your contribution to the, the nation, its uh, relationships, and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, I think they're really, really powerful. If you have... Um, if you have a platform and you use it, it extends your platform. Mm -hmm. So, um, and increasingly, of course, these awards are not going to uh, the great and the good, the part of the elites and establishment. They're going to pe ordinary people who make a, a significant contribution to good things. So, um, there was also a way, of course, of rewarding public servants who didn't mm -hmm. get the rewards of, of huge salaries and mm -hmm. fancy cars and health, pro health plans and so forth. So it's another way of recognizing. It's really about recognition. So with that as the foundation mm -hmm. and as an officer of the British Empire, <laughs> so you left public service, joined the university, and when we last spoke, the Peace Center had doubled in size and significantly increased in impact. So now as we're ending 2019, and as listeners are listening well into 2020 and beyond, Tell us what's happening with the Peace Center. So it's it's a really good story, and it's it's very little to do with with me per se. It's got a lot to do with the uh, the concept and the idea that we sold to the growing group of people that are involved. So Coventry is UK's city of peace and reconciliation, and that goes back to uh, traumatic experiences during the Second World War and the way in which Coventry bounced out of that trauma into very positive things. It's the most twin city in the world. It has more fellow partner cities, mm. all, all driven by a shared trauma in their history or their past. It's Dresden, which was terribly bombed during the mm -hmm. war as well. So um, we had a visionary university leader in 2010-11. In fact, okay. the vice chancellor, as we call her, and her deputy, okay very clearly saying that this university sits in the heart of this city and doesn't contribute to the iconic state of the city of peace and reconciliation. And of course, what Coventry does is promote good things mm -hmm. everywhere by its iconic nature. So a few of us at the university at that time were working in related areas. I, I was really interested in the challenges of multicultural communities and cohesion in, mm -hmm. in local cities that were becoming hugely diverse. Um, others were looking at uh, peace and conflict in terrible wars going mm -hmm. on around the world. And in the business school, they were, they were looking at issues of trust. So one weekend, we put together a concept that said, why don't we bring together scholars from the business and management schools that could help us look at trust at how it might be built, this notion of mm -hmm. coming in, uh, walking in and racing out that was referred to at this conference, at the ILA conference, how long it takes to build trust and how quickly you can lose it. Mm -hmm. And that, if you're interested in peaceful relations, um, trust is a huge issue, but actually traditionally it never been widely discussed in political science and international relations. 
So we brought some scholars from the business school, we brought peace scholars together, and my work on intercultural dialogue and, and social psychology. And we formed the Centre for Trust, Peace and Social Relations. It's a multidisciplinary, uh, transdisciplinary uh, um, centre. The university bought into it, big time. Okay. They're, they're amazing. We thought that we would just develop this thing like an acorn. <laughs> I have always have this passion about growing oak trees, you know, but I know it takes <laughs> 300 years. But Are they, you going to be around then? I, yes, I'm absolutely. They're going to yes. clone you. No. So um, they invested £20 million sterling over six years. This was this is unheard of. a huge investment. Yeah, this isn't an endowment from a rich philanthropist. This is the university saying this is a good idea and that we mm. want to, to form our future in that direction. That gave us core funding of around three and a half million pounds a year for six years mm -hmm. and and we said we will spend three years building this thing and we will spend three years this this the second mm -hmm. three years mm -hmm. delivering impact results credibility credentials mm -hmm. being recognized um, okay as they said so off we did and when I spoke to you last I think we we're at the end of our sort of three or four years the first period and we'd assembled the best part of 60 scholars. If I tell you there are 21 different nationalities, we operate in 18 different languages, we scoured the, the world for the best scholars, not necessarily the most published, the most famous, mm -hmm. but people who would work in a collegiate way around the principles that we discussed, working uh, for example, um, we have three principles that matter, and when we recruit people, we, they either buy into those or we don't recruit them. Teams come first. Team first is our first principle. So the academy's full of, of prima donnas, that's great, and we need them. It's full of eccentrics, <laughs> full of people who are just amazing individuals. But you don't need them. <laughs> no, we want the old and the young. We want hierarchy-free academy in which experienced academics work with early career researchers to bring richness of that generational combination. So we do. Everything's in teams. Our projects I, are team-based. And I think that's an important point to reiterate. And you, yeah. you have talked about that in a range of yeah. areas in our conversations. The, the hierarchy-free means ideas are flowing every direction. And young people are encouraged and treated as equals with respect. Yeah. So I'm a great believer in the power of youth and its energy mm -hmm. and its mm -hmm. ideas, its innovation, take risks and so forth. But I'm also a believer in the, the power of experience and mm -hmm. moderation and caution. And those of us who look to the next generation to solve our problems, fine. But actually, I prefer to talk about this generation, mm -hmm. the now generation, mm -hmm. I call it. We're all here. So... By creating a, a centre which which was which driven by team first, mm -hmm. all of a sudden, I don't like the word empowerment because it relates to power, but what it does is it brings valid contributions from whoever's a member. Mm -hmm. The second is we have a lot of freedom of action. It's not a permissions culture. Often leadership and management creates an environment, even good leadership, but it's mm -hmm. still raced around permissions. Mm -hmm. So we try to remove permissions by giving people space to take responsibility for their decisions, but they're mm -hmm. accountable. I was going to say that's the assigning of accountability. Yes. Yeah. So the second principle is accountability. You get a lot of freedom, but you're held to account. I'm mm -hmm. held to account, and mm -hmm. so is the most 
uh, the most recent and the youngest member of our team. And the third is that we, we try and avoid doing anything that doesn't have a long-lasting impact, a legacy. Mm-hmm. So quick fixes, I don't allow you know, someone will come along and say, well, we've got 25,000 pounds here, do this project, we need the results tomorrow, and it's a one-off report, it'll be published, and that's it. And we say, no, what's the consequence of this? The intended consequences and the unintended consequences. So those three principles, they're important to share with you because that's how we recruited on those bases. Mm -hmm, People mm -hmm. had to have something to to offer. We now have 68 full-time researchers we also are able, because of the investment by the university, not to have fixed-term contracts. We don't have people here for two years while they do a project and then disappear. So we're able to offer permanent tenured positions to wow. all our researchers. That's quite unusual. 68 tenured positions? Yeah. Wow. So under That's labor, a lot. Under labor law in, 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 in Europe, this is not, not that strange mm-hmm. because after three years you get... Mm. You know, under our systems and so forth, okay. you have protection of your jobs and so forth. But it means that you, your young researchers aren't beavering away for two years and then looking over their shoulders for their next project or mm-hmm. their next employment. The other thing, we, we work really hard as a, as a leadership team on retentions. If mm-hmm. we found these people, we jolly well want to keep them. So we have very, very high retention rates. We've lost two people, three people, in six years. So what do you do, and I think again this is important for our listeners across a range of institutions and enterprises, what do you do to retain people? So part of it is the involvement, engagement and the removal of you know, strict permissions. Mm-hmm. Um, part is that, and I think it's also to do with opportunity. If we can run the Centre for Trust, Peace and Social Relations in the way that we want to achieve trust, peace and social <laughs> relations outside, it's very engaging. Mm-hmm. It lets people uh, pursue their passion. So emotional intelligence and, and passion is huge in, this, in the centre. And pe- pe- people have space for that. It's very mm-hmm. diverse, so we don't, we don't put down people who have radical ideas. We're quite open. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult. It's very hard. We, we have conversations in the centre with visiting academics, which in some, some contexts would be banned because they come from a particular ideological standpoint, mm-hmm. but we're mm-hmm. quite open and we allow that to happen. Yeah. Well, th- somebody made the comment yesterday that these different ideas aren't contagious. Yeah. They're not gonna jump on you and take over your brain. Mm-hmm. It's the opportunity that the broader information I listen to, it may stretch something in my brain and all connected to something completely unrelated. Yeah. And it's that synthesis and synergy that happens with disparate ideas that does not happen with similar ideas. So I think we're we're creating our own agenda and that's attractive to Mm -hmm. academics particularly. Um, The other thing that's quite attractive to researchers is that we don't have a lot of teaching. We don't have teaching in in some campus-based programs. It distracts, it crowds Mm -hmm. out, it's hugely um, uh, an imposition to, to some researchers. We teach Mm-hmm. But we don't have any campus-based programs. Our teaching is, we have PhDs, of course, which, which are campus-based. The others are all focused on engaging with mid-career professionals in the field, in their workplace. So we do it online, we bring them for workshops, but we don't have students 
uh, in the on, traditional university sense. Uh, yes, so we're very fortunate okay. in that because they're usually they're necessary because they bring huge revenue. Of course, students mm -hmm. are important, mm -hmm. but the university has given us that space to create rigorous, robust research, new ideas. Mm -hmm. um, and as you said, when you have free-flowing ideas, it's attractive to young and to experienced researchers. And by golly, we've had some very innovative things that have jumped out and that have become very, very attractive to funders, which, which, you know, part of our deal with the university was that, all right, you can subsidize us for the first six years, but then we've got to earn our corn. We've got to get mm -hmm. out there. I'm delighted. This last year, the fifth year, we, we exceeded our revenue targets by a million pounds. This is a huge amount. If you've got a three million pound investment, I think we earned last year, um, it's a little interest to your, to your listeners, of course, but I think we earned about three quarters as much again in external funding. And well, this is a what, measure of other people's valuation of our work. And, and I think that's what's important for listeners, yeah. is where are we as a global society mm. investing? Because you know we hear what we hear in the news, and it's often hard to put it into context. Mm. Are we safer or less safe? Yeah. Are we democratic or more democratic? Sure. We heard Henry say yesterday, 4.5% of the world's population lives under healthy democracy versus flawed yeah. democracy so and it's just not acceptable is it i mean it's just just no way to run a world as i say often <laughs> and um i i think look at some of the ideas let me share that, that, that have come up and some of the um combinations of scholars mm. that are now mm. working effectively we now have a group of scholars in the center who look at faith and peaceful relations so we had Theologists. We had those interested in the current uh, diversity of faith and belief, in, in particularly in Western societies, in, mm -hmm. in, in the, the role of Muslims in Europe and so forth. But we put those that were interested in faith and values and beliefs together with those that were interested in how we mobilize faiths, values and beliefs to create a more peaceful world. So the peace that we promote in the center, in our thinking, is mm -hmm. not the peace that's the antidote to conflict. It's not a peace that you impose on disorder. Mm -hmm. It's a, a positive peace, as Galton talks mm -hmm. about, that's value in its own right. And actually, it's a peacefulness that's as important in families, mm -hmm. where conflict and domestic violence is a critical issue, mm -hmm. as it is in mega international disputes over territory or over energy sources. So the peace we discussed is about and social relations which are positive and supportive rather than conflicted and I violent. I think last year our interview was actually titled What If We Were a Peaceful Species? Yeah, yeah. So it's a big assumption. Do we assume that we're born to, to be competitive and conflict with one another? Or does something happen to us on our journey that creates that? I don't know the answer to that, but it's certainly worth debating and certainly worth mm. discussing but I you know we we've we worked last year with Steve Kalele from the uh, from Australia who's developed the the index of peace okay and, he'll, and I met him in Oxford he, he, it was a great conversation and he's coming back to Coventry uh, next month and his index shows that we're more peaceful now than we've ever been well, it certainly doesn't feel that, does it? But I'm not. <laughs> not really... when I open my phone yeah. and see the, uh, you know, the news flashes, and it's 
conflict here, conflict there, yeah. but but they're not the same level of deadly conflict. Sure. There so are I think we protests. are in a world that's generally getting hold of this issue, mm-hmm. where violence is being put back, pushed back as a way of resolving mm-hmm. uh, personal relational issues mm-hmm. and so forth. We're not there yet. But what, what I worry about, of course, is that the, the conflict is moving from that conflict between nations, although we still mm-hmm. have that, yeah. to conflict within communities or within families or within very close-knit localities. And so we need, we need to work more on that. So our Faith and Peace Relations team are really insightful and they're bringing, for example, what's the role of a, a university chaplain? We've done big research on the hmm. role of faith representatives among student bodies. You know, I, I had a conversation yesterday, and I, I realize our listeners won't know some of these names, but Nancy Adler during yeah. the interview with her, where she said people who have a strong basis in faith, and it doesn't matter which faith, mm. seem to have more confidence and less fear mm. than people who don't. And so, to your point, how do we create within a company? Because the other interview I just finished was uh, with a researcher, Lynn talking about people's willingness to follow people who are different. Mm. So mm. I, 54% of the population will follow someone of a different gender. Mm. That's a bit problematic. Yeah. Since half of us are male and half of us are female, yeah. only a third would follow someone of a different political party. Mm. Now, I don't know what that means. Will they not take a job for Will they not do what they're asked? Mm. Uh, I think it, it is more... Um, above and beyond and community work and things like that. But it seems like there is, in the more granular elements of society, a lot of work still to be done. Well, the psychologists and their research help us a lot. We have a Mm -hmm. couple of really strong, um, Gavin Sullivan is one of our professors, just a huge amount of work on contact theory and around the issue of how much you bounce into people of difference and how you do that. And mm-hmm. You know, the, the, in some of my work on intercultural dialogue, I noticed that people got stuck on encounter. So when I meet Maureen, here we mm-hmm. are, we sit and we meet each other and that's fine. But actually you have to, following the encounter, we have to exchange and we do. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, isn't it? Encounter itself is a necessary but not sufficient part of a relationship. Mm -hmm. So exchange is really important. So we share things. You find Mm -hmm. out about Mm -hmm. each other. But even that's not enough. So, you know, if you go from exchange to, uh, from encounter to exchange and then move on to uh, engagement, then that makes a real difference. So we meet each other, we exchange things. It's only then when we engage with each other that the relationship becomes sustainable. Well, and the differences, not just the commonalities. That's right, yeah. And I then, then thought, I mean, it's, 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 it's always clever to have ease, isn't it? Encounter, <laughs> exchange, and engage. But what happens then if we enact, if we do something together? So that, and I've been looking at that. The research I've done has been actually talking to, to, to big people, to, to world leaders. To okay, not, not people of big stature. No, <laughs> big people in terms of their ability to influence or their experience. Mm-hmm. So we've had some great examples here, of course, at mm-hmm. this forum. So I've asked people, what do you think about this progression moving mm-hmm. from where contact theory says we should spend more time with each other 
to actually engaging and doing things together, which is rather different. So is it, when I engage, when you and I have dialogue, is it that we build on the commonality, we are open to difference, D does the theory speak to maybe the both? So I think it's the way we deal with both commonality and difference. It's okay. the way in which we cope with it. It's a coping mechanism that we improve, we strengthen. So um, I think also that we build um, shared action or shared visions of things that, and insights that we might not have had before. So. I'll hear something from you and I'll go away and process it and I've changed, you know. Well, and that's what's been so fun about our interactions mm. because they're now happening every year and I learn from you and I use things that you've told me. I integrate them into my mm. work. But we haven't worked closely enough that we've had conflict. Or at least I have not we had conflict. We could try, couldn't we? <laughs> yes, no, I agree, yeah. No. So it's, it is largely built on shared values around building it's leadership. Because, because actually our conversations are like a journey where we have probably an agreed destination, we're, mm -hmm. what we're trying to achieve. We have mm -hmm. a very imperfect journey. You know, we've got um, a satellite navigation that keeps changing its mind all the time. And that's the exploration in, in the conversation. But actually the reason we don't have a conflicted discussion is probably because we have a shared destination even if it hasn't been explicit. And that's about mm -hmm. exploring things, exploring mm -hmm. things that will be of interest to those people who might listen, and, and they're focused around some themes, you know, leadership and influence. I also have the belief that if we differ, that's okay. Mm. I don't have to thump you over the head, you don't have to thump me over the head, we don't have to agree. We express a difference and then we both go away and process. So in my career, we've, I was very, very fortunate I stumbled into context in which I found quite alien, very different. Okay, so say more about that. So I think I've told you before, I, I was sent to Cairo for three years as an advisor as mm -hmm. a, and operated there. I went to Jerusalem, I lived for four years in Indonesia and actually not everything was familiar, it's mm -hmm. been culturally different, not everything was easy to accept. Sometimes the patriarchy I found really difficult and the, the, the role of women or the role of young people. Mm -hmm. I found the poverty really difficult to, to process. But it, what, there are different ways in which you react to that. There's mm -hmm. things that you really disagree with. You can campaign and fight and become a, a righteous person, or you can begin to process it differently and try and, to understand it. And I think what happened is I still get angry about it. I don't have mm -hmm. anger, but I get disappointed and frustrated. But I process it differently and try not to build differences, but to build shared, shared appreciations, if you like. And what, what it taught me was that the power of respect for difference, respect for people who are really passionate and have strong feelings that, that I don't. Mm -hmm. um, but you need, you, know, you, need to, you need to give them space and say that there has to be a way. It's, it's the most powerful potential destructive force that we have our inability to live with difference. Beautiful. You know, with that thought, we're going to go on break, and I'm going to invite our listeners to think about where do you experience difference in your world right now that you allow to erode the relationship with the person with whom you differ hmm. versus difference of ideas, 
and maintaining relationship. And I know that's hard. It's easier to say you're one of those and I don't want to deal with you than to say that's different, I respect you, at least as a good thinker. And it invites me to, to at least inquire into my thinking. So with that, we will go on break. You are with Maureen Metcalf and Mike Hardy. We'll be right back. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now, back to this week's program. Okay, welcome back to the conversation with... Mike Hardy and Maureen Metcalf, and we're talking about peace. So, Mike, you've talked a little bit about your center and the wish that as we go forward on the planet that we we connect with our sense of being peaceful beings. Yeah, so Do you want to talk a little more about that? Sure. So my the, the center we've created and the team mm-hmm. that we've assembled has a future. That's the first point to make. And if you have mm-hmm. a future... That always says to me, you know, you need a, a sort of a destination. You might never reach it, mm-hmm. but you have a direction of travel. You're all, uh, we have a lot of collaborative work within the center, a lot of flat structures so that people have a voice. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we've developed around is our clearer understanding of where the future of the scholarship we provide in the center. The center is a research center. It's unapologetic about that. That's our job, is to create Mm -hmm. evidence, to create new ways of thinking, to create better conceptual frameworks Mm -hmm. that will amplify and help explore some of the challenges we face. Mm -hmm. We focus in two ways. One, we're trying to look more carefully at recognized global challenges. Okay. So peace studies in the past quite often, and rightly, focused heavily on conflict and post-conflict situations, mm-hmm. how to build the peace and how to keep the peace, okay. central to the literature and a lot of the research. 
And as a result, we got much greater and stronger understanding about the best forms of post-conflict scenarios and mm -hmm. post-conflict strategies. But you know, if we face and step up to the global challenges we face, some of them aren't necessarily conflicts between nation states. Some of them aren't the following a battlefield. Some of the global challenges we face are simply because of the nature of processes that are currently at work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 70 million people on the move who aren't able to stay in their homes. Now to you and I, that's quite a challenge just thinking about it because we have you know, we're probably lucky to have a home and mm -hmm. have a home that's quite safe and secure and we go back to it every night. 70 million people don't. So we have a whole load of people, shed loads of people who are displaced. Mm -hmm. Now that... With no, no immediate plan to go home. And no prospect either sometimes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, they have to start building again. And there are wonderful stories that we could, mm -hmm. we could share of people who are uprooted and rerooted mm -hmm. and, and make a lot of it. But there are those who don't. So we're looking at what scholarship do we need and what can mm -hmm. we sponsor at the centre to help understand the, 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 the plight of displacement and what that does. What do we mm -hmm. need to understand to address it better, to, to meet the challenge better? What policies should we be promoting mm -hmm. to help? You know, the, I may well have to told you the story before, one of the most powerful uh, narratives that I had in my centre from a couple of years ago were the conversations that researchers led by Heaven Crawley, my professor of international uh, migration, the conversations she was having with, with Syrian and Afghan refugees as they arrived in Greece. Okay. And just think, think this through. You could ask, you know, well, what do you need? What help can we give? You can do all sorts mm -hmm. of things. Imagine asking someone getting out of a boat provided by a trafficker. What did you do in the last hour before you left your home in Aleppo? Mm. I remember you talking about yeah. what's, what's the one item you take with you? Yeah, that that's, that's another one. Remember that? So mm -hmm. what this was telling the researchers is that these people weren't making permanent movements. They were actually fleeing a, a situation. If that situation mm -hmm. were to change, they could go home. So shouldn't that then look... Uh, and inform policymakers how better to deal with this global challenge. Don't treat them as threats, treat them as displaced, treat them as vulnerabilities, treat them as people that need to have a cuddle, need to have a hug before they go home again. And let's get some of the big issues on the political sort of stratosphere that's, that's creating all this turbulence and ordinary people. So where that's taken us, that's there any little examples, where that's taken us is to say, our research, we should be looking more at peacefulness than just at peace. Peace is a state of affair. Peacefulness mm -hmm. is a, a feeling, if you like. Mm -hmm. So yes, the index might say that we're more peaceful now than ever before in the world. But it but doesn't we feel that way. Exactly. And so what do we need to create? What do we need to do? What understanding do we need to share through our scholarship, through our research? to help build mm -hmm. a more mm -hmm. peaceful place, a more peaceful way of you and I relating when we come into mm -hmm. conflict, however me. You know, if I'm sitting in your seat on the train mm -hmm. and I have a reservation and you have a reservation and some computer somewhere has made this problematic, that is not always peacefully resolved. We're not good at that, mm -hmm. particularly if you then overlay that with prejudice, with you're a foreigner, you're whatever. And, and just basic fatigue. Yeah. So um, 
I think that it sounds airy-fairy, but, but it really is quite important. I think we'd, I'd like us to understand better the, the conditions that we need to create in humankind that would lead to more peacefulness and less conflict and less violence. Well, and it, it seems that that starts with each individual. Yeah. It also starts with government and policies, and I yeah. understand that I'm not being either delusional. But it how starts do I, inside. How do I live peacefully with you, with my yeah. partner, with my neighbors, who are sometimes incredibly challenging mm. people? So some I've, lovely, some not it, so lovely. Absolutely, and I've told you before, I think. You know, I went, I've begun to look more at spiritual scholarship mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. at... at humanism and all sorts of things that might mm -hmm. shed a bit of light on how to get yourself in all in a place mm -hmm. that then makes you you know I, I i i spoke at the spirit of humanity forum in held in reykjavik okay it was a i was so touched to be invited mm -hmm. and because i went thinking well it's all right you can tell everyone about your center and how wonderful it is because i do that all the mm -hmm. time mm -hmm. when i got there david cadman who's a wonderful guy he said mike we don't want you to tell us about your centre. We know about your centre. We we can see it online and so forth. Mm -hmm. We don't want you to tell us what you do. We want you to tell us why you do it. Mm. All right. Now, that was an education for me. I had to rush off to the hotel room to have a think. You know, mm -hmm. spontaneous Mikey's not. You know, I, <laughs> I, I can appear to be. But actually, it's a very powerful point that he was making. What is it inside, Mr. Mike, that leads him to? to push in the way that we have, to build the sorts of centres, to attract people to come and work. So what, what was the kernel of wisdom that you shared with that group? Just, well, I told them my life's journey and how I started as a, quite a self-seeking, ambitious economist. And in my first career as mm -hmm. I was a professor of economics, I was probably the youngest in my department at Leeds. But mm -hmm. um, something happened along the road in which it exposed me to, and, and challenged me to think more widely than mm -hmm. my own little thing. Um, and I think partly because I was very fortunate and travelled a lot and I worked and lived in other countries and I was confronted with alien contexts and difference. Mm -hmm. And it led me quite quickly to say that, um, you know, of many things that we need to be, one of them is we need to be more comfortable with difference. We need to be more able to cope when difference can, uh, presents itself. And along with the pace of change, mm -hmm. you know, if you, I think one of the greatest, you know, aspects of turbulence these days is, is not change, it's the pace of change. It's how quickly things change. Mm -hmm. um, and that I think coming to terms with that, we're very poor, very weak. Mm -hmm. We don't spend enough time in our schools helping young people uh, become more adaptive and more flexible. We just expect that they're going to be. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is work we can do, and that's, that drives what we do. So mm -hmm. when you think more about why you do something, I want to change the world, but I'm also humble enough to know that that has to be done in collaboration with many other people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have to create this notion that I often use, that, that life isn't a series of moments, it's a movement, it's a whole program. Mm -hmm. And so, why do I do what I do? Because I can make a tiny little bit of change in an mm -hmm. early career researcher, fresh out of PhD, who will come and has an illustrious and wonderful career set mm -hmm. out. And if I can get just a little bit of influence at the beginning to say, 
hey, be a top-ranked scholar. Mm-hmm. Be a wonderfully interesting and inspiring person, but be very clear about your purpose, about why you're doing it. And that's, you know, so the challenge that I was had, I give to everyone else now. That's the best way, of course, because they have cleverer <laughs> answers than I. So thank you for sharing your passion about this. You and I, as we were walking into the session, had a conversation about your son challenging you. What were you going to do for your New Year's resolution Well, you asked me, you know, what, what can we do as individuals? Very mm-hmm. little. We're tiny people in this mm-hmm. huge, complex place. But, and it was driven a, a little by that question about why I do what I do. But my sons, we were joking at one stage. I think we were chasing my grandson around, which is what we normally do. Mm-hmm. And he said, what are you, what's your New Year's resolution? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't do resolutions because I just haven't for many years. You can mm-hmm. give things up and say that, you've, that you're pleased with yourself for doing it. But I reflected on it, mm-hmm. Maureen, and, and I thought, this is actually an opportunity for a leader to lead in a, mm-hmm. in a silly mm-hmm. way with very small L. Mm-hmm. And so I, I decided to give up anger, to give up being angry. I'm a, you know, I, I get really engaged with things. I get <laughs> really passionate about things. I, I'm so cross that the world is in the state it's in, that one in four people in Britain, kids are brought up in poverty, that we have food banks that the International Red Cross distributes food in the UK, not just in Africa. You know, this is nonsense. So you could get angry, but actually what I think happens when you're angry is that you damage yourself. Physiologically, we know that. And you're you're less useful Mm -hmm. in meeting the challenges. So Mm -hmm. I, I, I decided to give up anger. My staff will be better judges than I if I've been <laughs> successful, but you won't find me angry. You'll find me disappointed, frustrated. Mm-hmm. You'll find me, you know, let down, feeling of huge anxiety, but you won't find an angry mind now. And I feel better for it. I'm more useful as a result, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And you know that's infectious. It's and that's what's funny how that happens, and right? I never thought of that at the time. But if, if I get angry, the reaction... Is will be that someone gets angry back and this just propagates into uh, less rational exchanges. Life is all about social relations between people, isn't it? And I don't have to like you, I don't have to agree with you. Mm-hmm. I don't have to like spending t- any time with you. Hopefully but, you do, though. Of course I do. <laughs> and that's why it's uh, such an absurd thought. But, but I need to understand you and I yeah. need to respect you. I need to be able to stand in your shoes sometimes mm-hmm. and you need to stand in mine. And, and that will, you know, the, I, I often say, I've said to you before, the greatest source of human security is our inability to do what I've just described. The fear of the other mm-hmm. will, will kill us all. I mean, we'll be doomed. Mm-hmm. And there is, it's, it's a powerful emotion when you find, you know, when I was a, a student, when I was a, uh, a youngster, my class at school, I remember it very well, when I was a boy, a very young boy, and I really actually reflect on this. My mother was American. In the post-war years, uh, there was quite a lot of anti-American feeling in Britain. I didn't realize she was American, and you, were, you grew up in Britain, though. Yeah, I grew up in okay. Britain. She, she arrived before, before I was born and never went home. She, hmm. we, were, we were British and English and so forth. But at school, I used to be teased terribly and bullied for having peanut butter sandwiches and having things, a, a banana in the 50s, you know, mm-hmm. in America, it was fine. So 
um, in a sense, even though I came from a very safe and common mm -hmm. stock, you know, my, mm -hmm. my, my classrooms at school were not diverse. Okay. There was only one language. There was only one set of things, you know. Mm -hmm. Imagine now when your students arrive on campus. So, you know, we have a hundred different nationalities at Coventry University with 80 or so different languages being used in the coffee shops. So, I mean, it's just a different place, isn't it? You know, I grew up in D.C. largely, yeah. and yeah. it is interesting because they're mostly it's really delightful to hear another language. Yeah. But occasionally, there's, it's a little jolting, like... It is. Just, I wish I could understand. So, and when I went to Indonesia, I lived, lived there for four years, and uh, I was very, very distinctive. I have white hair, I'm a mm -hmm. white guy, I'm, I'm an elder now. And the, what was different from home is that elderly people are hugely respected. Mm. The space you give and the respect you get is part of the culture. It's quite, it's quite endearing. You so don't you're going to move to Indonesia <laughs> next <laughs> as you age. <laughs> um, but you know, I was always an expatriate, mm -hmm. never a migrant, and it's really oh, interesting. interesting. And yeah. that's a very distinct difference because yeah, you were whitey, you were Westerner, you were, you know. And actually, the people that I met in Java in Sumatra. Um, they, they didn't have a great deal of contact with foreigners, but when they did, we were always the expatriate. We were mm -hmm. the leaders, we were the influencers, we were the owners or something. It's got a, quite an interesting insight, though, mm -hmm. and that's helped as well. Um, well, and you're also going home. Yes. Yeah. The, the assumption with an expat is you're temporary, yeah. Yeah. not you're a migrant yeah. who, who the fear is will be permanent. Sure, and you know, but what I see now among young people you know, the most accepting places in the world are the most diverse places. So it doesn't mean, you know, in London recently voted to stay in the European Union. Mm -hmm. It has less fear of foreigners than other places. It's mm -hmm. a hugely diverse place. So there's some lessons here, something for us to dig into and research a bit more. Mm -hmm. London um, doesn't celebrate, but it acknowledges all the benefits of diversity in quite mm -hmm. a warm mm -hmm. way. You know, people are less anxious about foreigners and new mm -hmm. people. But you can well understand in sort of monocultural places in the, in the mm -hmm. country where mm -hmm. all of a sudden very different cultures appear. Mm -hmm. We have to work at that. We have to help people cope mm -hmm. with this. These are global challenges. Mm -hmm. They're not mm -hmm. local to, to, to the UK or local to anywhere else. And yet, again, that getting comfortable with is an individual process. It is. You, how, what, what was your process to let go of anger? I'm guessing you didn't just wake up one day and say, I'm never going to be angry again. That probably no, but I work. used to be angry. I, I remember, uh, I was probably a terrible son, you know. Mm -hmm. I remember being angry with my children as well when they let me down or when they got mm -hmm. into dangerous situations. Mm -hmm. So I reflected, the process was to identify, I remember a time or two when you were angry and what happened as a consequence. Mm -hmm wasn't always positive. You didn't Often resolve not. it. So when you started looking at it, it became, mm. why didn't I do this earlier? This actually mm -hmm. makes sense. But it's really difficult. Well, and that's part of what I'm trying to draw, the, yeah. the distinction. Even though I know it's the right thing to do, yeah. I'm still reprogramming myself to do it yeah. consistently. It, it really is difficult. And it's, you have to believe in things like dialogue and believe mm. in uh, the long period that it might be that you have to take to resolve something. Mm -hmm. And some people say to me, well, Mike, 
when I'm angry, it, it, I feel better. It resolves things. It clears the air. But does it? I don't think it does. I think people if you can explode and it releases tension. In some it releases way. tension in you, but that's exactly. the contagious thing. Yeah. If I release tension around other people versus yeah. when I'm out by myself hiking. So I'm not trained in this. You know, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist in the sense. So there'll be others out there with much better mm-hmm. understandings right. of the things I'm feeling. But I'm I'm a better person. Mm-hmm. And I don't care what other people think. I know what I judge myself. Mm-hmm. I'm a mm-hmm. better person. I'm I'm less angry. I still have my moments, you know. <laughs> but um, they're fewer and far far between. And the other thing that it leads you to have to fill the void. You got rid of anger. So what's there instead, Mike? And you don't become a depressive. You know, you don't that you don't want that. But actually, what fills it is with empathy with a stronger understanding of where someone's probably coming from so when people people used to really annoy me and i'd get very angry at <laughs> them for doing very silly things i'm imagining most of our listeners have had that experience once or twice so what you life. put in its place is something like empathy which is it's interesting so curiosity I, yeah it's help why, me understand why are they why doing you this did why that? are they doing this to try and wind me up in this way you know and it's actually it probably has nothing to do with you in most cases no except your kids I, it, it, but it'd be very flip wouldn't it to just say well it's their problem you know let them but get on with not. it but it's not no but sometimes their anger or their expression mm-hmm. or provocation or winding up or whatever they're mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. Um, is a quite deliberate strategy it's a power strategy mm-hmm. or you know and I I think you if you're empathetic you just say alright there's, there's something else going on that's not out mm-hmm. in the open. So my reacting with anger is not going to draw anything out. It's just going to harden lines, you know. Well, and accelerate their anger. Yeah. And I find when I meet anger with anger, mostly it's ineffective. Yeah. But there are occasions where it is also appropriate to almost create the barrier that bounces. So, and we have to change some of the assumptions that we make. Mm-hmm. So that being accepting or not getting angry is somehow makes me weak. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a perception. It, it, it's a more advanced. Yeah. Hang on, you're a approach. soft touch, Mike, because I can do these outrageous things, and and you, you know, you don't react in a sort of programmed way. Then so you must be a weakling or so. That's but an that's an interesting point yeah. because, especially as we look at the negotiating strategy in the U.S. right now of yeah. our president, yeah. that it's all the way in and aggressive, how do people meet that strategy to pivot? Mm. And frankly, when that's the primary strategy and everyone knows it, now people are able to to manipulate that strategy. So we're at the International Leadership Association Forum. There was a wonderful bit. Um, you, t- you always have takeaways, don't you? Mm-hmm. But somebody said something that I've heard many times before but reminded me. He mm-hmm. said, you know that the difference between leadership and management. Mm. Remember mm-hmm. this? Yeah, I say, do. To be a good leader, you've got to be a good manager. And to be a good manager, you've got to be a good leader. I think that was Henry Mintzberg. Yeah, exactly. And it, it reminded me. We've heard it before. Mm-hmm. I've read his mm-hmm. work before. Mm-hmm. And it was a good... But this is a very good example. To be... A, my my thinking more about why I do what I do, my mm-hmm. giving up anger and doing... This is about my leadership of my centre. It's my responsibility. Mm-hmm. And your leadership of yourself. 
I think we, we, we assume that leadership is out there. Yeah. And one of my key messages is it's in here first. Yeah. And only when I am leading myself am I able to be a leader that people want yeah. to follow. So how can I, if I can't manage myself, how can I manage others effectively? And how can I provide the, the role model or the leadership mm -hmm. that some you know, early career researchers need? Well, some people one, clearly, but most of us need yeah. someone that we can yeah. resonate with and trust and respect. Yeah. And people who are ranting and raving, for many of us, aren't the ones we want to emulate. So I suppose what what I've learned most powerfully, I I got thrown into leadership. I just like what I do, and all of mm -hmm. a sudden we've got a big operation, and you have to think continuously about what you're doing and how you're doing it if you want to be effective. It doesn't come automatically. There are no born leaders, in my view. They're constructed by context and circumstance. And you can be good or bad or indifferent. Um, but actually, you've just got to be a thoughtful leader. That's the thing. I think on that, we so totally agree that, that if leaders could do one thing, and that's be conscious, yeah. of what, what's going on inside and what's coming outside yeah. and how does that match the environment, which isn't an easy request, we could be so much more effective yeah. and reduce the conflict, increase the sense of safety that brings about an ability to respond peacefully. And communication is critical, isn't it? You know, mm -hmm. I was so touched the other day when one of my staff came to me and said, this is what I've done, Mike. I didn't bother mm -hmm. you because I knew how you would have done it. <laughs> so, and I went away thinking, God, he's spent all that money and dwarf, you know. But actually, he, he, he'd solved the problem he had without recourse mm -hmm. to his mm -hmm. leader. And the reason he'd done that is because we have a rapport and I clearly have communicated. That was a big mm -hmm. tick for me. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, mm -hmm. you can have your own ticks, you know, and <laughs> praise yourself. But the fact that he came and after the fact, he was done and dusted, he didn't mm -hmm. ask, and he should have done, technically, but he mm -hmm. didn't need to. And that was great. Uh, you know, that's a risk as well, but uh, I love the organization that we have, and it's mostly because they're great people. So as we close, and while people are going to be listening to this at various times, this is the last conversation at the Canadian-Ottawa ILA conference. It is. Do you have any just parting thoughts for our listeners who aren't here about peace, peacefulness, trust, and courage? So all those are su such um, needy things. We need more of mm -hmm. them. And mm -hmm. my thoughts are always about how to, sp how to contribute in small ways to make sure we do. I'm very concerned that we should redefine some of our leadership work into into purposeful and, and leadership for or of peace. And I think mm -hmm. we don't do enough of that. And if I have any influence, future ILA conferences will be focusing on that. What can we do as leaders that's more likely to achieve the peaceful relations that we've been talking about today? What can we do? We have to do it, be deliberate, mm -hmm. and we have to be measured, but we have to be committed to that. And I don't think all our leaders are really interested in peacefulness. They're interested in propagating power bases or doing other things, or com competition. But that's what I'd like to put on the agenda. The leadership of or the leadership for peace. You know, as you say that, I can't help but say, 
even the study of power can be for peace. Yes. Not necessarily negative if used effectively. So how do we mobilize our capabilities for a particular purpose? But you have to be clear about your purpose. And my purpose is to create more peaceful relations between people. What a beautiful way to end the conference. Mike, do you have a website that people can learn more about your work? So yes, go to the Center for Trust, Peace and Social Relations at Coventry University, CTPSR, uh, and you'll find out. And, and you can get in touch with me. And, and that would be by LinkedIn, most likely just messaging. Yeah, LinkedIn, I'm on LinkedIn. It's Professor Mike Hardy as well. Just message you. That'd be great. And Thank just be you. patient, because I'm not always as quick as I should be. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. It's just a delight to get to spend time with you. Thank you, Maureen. Thank you for listening today, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation that Maureen had with one of our ILA thought leaders. And we look forward to having you join us throughout this 15 podcast series on leadership during these turbulent times. Thank you for joining us at the International Leadership Association Conference Interview Series, recorded live in Ottawa, Canada. We love to hear your feedback. And part of the feedback that really inspires us is letting us know how these interviews have impacted you personally and your organization. Please reach out to me at info at innovateleader.com or on LinkedIn, connect with me as Maureen Metcalf. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week.